I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm really honored to to receive this award, um, uh, particularly since RISA was one of the very first to to start these kind of ESG funds. Um, <clears throat> I also thought I was going to escape the Austin at worst allergy season um, by coming to Europe, but it turns out Europe has ragweed too. So. Um, Anyway, what I wanted to talk about were some of the opportunities and challenges of, of ESG investing. And I mean, everybody knows this, but it's kind of obligatory to start with. There's been this huge increase in interest in ESG investing and in institutional investors offering products and having assets under management. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I would caution, and, and you probably already know this, is that this assets under management is the total asset under management for the signatories. It is not that they have all of these assets being managed using um, ESG. There's also been consistent positive flows in ESG funds. And this, this just shows the last few years, but, but um, and it shows quarterly, so it goes through the first half of, of this year. But if you look, this blue is Europe. So there are huge flows going into ESG in Europe, much more than in the US or in the rest of the world. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, uh, one other thing I want to point out is that the ESG fund flows were net positive in the first half of this year even though the conventional fund flows have been negative. Uh, there are also a lot of new ESG funds being launched, which again, you probably already know this. Um, and again, if the, the blue is the, the major number are in, are in Europe, um, uh, with fewer in the US. Uh, but in both Europe and the US, the majority of these launches are for actively managed funds. There are there are a lot of passive funds being launched, but if you look, the majority are actually for actively managed funds. But what do we mean by ESG? Uh, you and I can probably have very different definitions. We, we certainly saw from the, from the poll that there were very different opinions about, about ESG. So there does exist a lot of confusion, and I think it's particularly because these terms are ill-defined and the definitions vary. And there, there's a lack of agreement on what ESG investing means and what it entails. And context is very important. So I like to think about this as the difference between ESG values and ESG value. And by value here, I mean financial value. And the motivations then define the investment approach. So under ESG values, it has to do with investor preferences. And two of the main ones are avoidance of complicity by, by being, in, being an owner of a firm or lending to a firm that has behaviors that the investor doesn't like or products that the investor doesn't like. And similarly, they don't want to supply capital for those products or for that behavior. <clears throat> but there's also the idea from the ESG values of making an impact with your capital. So for some people, it has to do with supplying capital to, to products and, um, and, and corporate behavior that's changing the world, that has, that has some kind of, of positive um, ultimate impact. And then there's, for ESG values, there are those who have used engagement or stewardship to change um, corporate behavior. With ESG value, I think one of the main ideas here is for risk management, that by looking at the different environmental, social, and governance factors for a firm, that there's more information about the risk of the firm and there can be uh, more experience reduced exposure to some of the, um, the, the greater risk. Um, and I have some research where that actually shows that engagement can reduce downside risk 
of a firm. Um, and then uh, related to that then is the idea there can be return opportunities through engagement and stewardship and also through investment selection. Okay, these are not clear boundaries because many investors have both. They want to invest according to their values as well as their, their value. Uh, so if we look at the different approaches, uh, you know, there's exclusion, investment, negative screening, which is one of the primary approaches for people who are investing according to their values. Again, they want to avoid the complicity. Um, but there are those that, that will do a positive tilt. Because if you think about the exclusion, the divestment, how do you make that decision? Do you, do you um, exclude Starbucks because they have a very, they did have a very small percentage of, of alcohol products? Um, and so, so it, you know, wh where, where is the line drawn for, um, for the exclusion? So, so many would use a positive tilt instead. There's also, again, engagement and stewardship, the thematic investing. Maybe, maybe you believe in animal rights and you want to make sure you don't invest in, in companies that have any kind of harm to animals. And then there's impact investing. What's, what's the ultimate outcome of this investment? With ESG value, the main approaches are ESG integration and risk assessment, the uh, positive tilt, again, engagement stewardship. Again, there can be thematic investing because of trying to take advantage of opportunities, such as, say, renewables. Um, and, and there can be impact investing under ESG value as well. Okay, so I want to spend a few minutes talking about ESG integration and using ESG ratings. Um, they've been widely criticized, and here are some of the following problems. There's a lack of correlation across the providers. Um, and so <coughs> you, you'll often hear, well, they're not like credit ratings. Credit ratings, so we should see, you know, they have a 90% correlation across the different credit ratings. You don't. You have. You can have very low correlations across the, the ESG ratings. There's been an upward drift over time in the ratings, so the ratings providers must have some kind of greenwashing that they're allowing, or the corporations themselves are greenwashing. The upgrades have resulted more from firms' governance improvements than environmental or social improvements. And again, these are these are claims that people, that people are making. The ratings are subject to firm's greenwashings, and greater ESG disclosure actually results in greater ESG ratings disagreement. Um, however, ESG ratings are not the same as credit ratings. ESG ratings are people's opinions um, <clears throat> about companies, and they differ in the scope that's used, the weights that used, and the measurements that are used. And the biggest differences are in scope and measurement. Um, and so with mixed views on what ESG is, we shouldn't be surprised that the ratings would be expected to differ. But we also shouldn't look at them as being like credit ratings. They are like uh, a sell-side financial analyst ratings. And just as people would not use a single sell-side analyst recommendation alone, ESG rating should also not be used in isolation. And as many of you probably, <coughs> you have to excuse me, and many of you probably already do, it's been my experience that investment managers who use the ESG rating services use it for uh, the underlying information, not for the final number. Okay, so there's also this debate about positive or negative screening. Do you do a positive portfolio tilt or do you exclude? <clears throat> and with the, the thing with the positive tilt is you're weighting the problematic ESG firms less. If you're excluding, you know, you don't hold the uh, security at all. Again, you're avoiding complicity. One difference is if, you're, if you have a positive tilt, you can engage and vote on proxies to pressure for better ESG behavior from that firm. But if you excluded, you can't engage or vote proxies. 
And I recently was talking to an investment management company and they have a, um, an ESG fund among other funds. And when it came time to vote on the Exxon proxy fight a couple of years ago, their ESG shareholders got real excited and said, okay, we want to vote for, for you know, the alternate candidates for Exxon. And they had to tell them, you're not a holder of Exxon. Your fund won't be voting because Exxon is not part of it. So, so you know, when you exclude, you don't have the opportunity to change behavior through, through engagement. <clears throat> the positive tilt allows for diversifying across sectors. With exclusion, you obviously are going to have higher tracking error based on a mechanical decision. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about research and what research has found on the effectiveness of exit or divestment for instituting change. So in terms of the theoretical conceptual arguments, um, one paper has shown that exit should be ineffective given most managerial compensation contracts because there's not going to be enough exit to actually affect the manager's incentives. Another uh, uh, academic paper has shown that the effect on cost of capital is going to be too low to make a difference. So again, the, uh, the exclusion doesn't work well. And then the effectiveness depends on the motivations of a majority of the shareholders of the firm, according to another conceptual argument. The empirical evidence, when, when they studied um, what happened with the South African invest, divestments, there was little discernible effect on the firm values. And um, uh, a paper by uh, a, a, a you know, local um, found that exit can be effective under certain conditions, including having um, environmental and social conscious institutional investors. Okay, so what about shorting? There are those who argue that you should short, instead of investing, you should actually go further and short the, the uh, problematic, particularly climate uh, firms. Uh, and this depends primarily on your value expectations. The theoretical rationales, and these are controversial, is first, Shorting problematic firms can increase returns, so it's an opportunity to increase returns. It puts more pressure on firm management through increasing their cost of capital. So, so if you have enough people shorting, then, then while exclusion may not increase it, the shorting could increase the cost of capital. Um, <coughs> that you can hedge against ESG risk through shorting and more effective than, say, for example, buying a renewable portfolio in, in terms of the climate. And you can affect the portfolio's net zero goals. So if you have net zero goals by shorting, you can get that down faster. One problem with this is the last I knew, the European Union hadn't decided whether shorting would count in, in measuring the net zero goals. Okay, <clears throat> when we talk about ESG in private equity and real estate, it's become, there's, there's developed a lot more interest. <coughs> I really apologize for this. So the asset owners are increasingly asking about the ESG of their private equity and real estate investments. And they're particularly concerned about the emissions that are coming from these. And, and there's this argument that the, the, the high emitting firms are all going to go private if they have to start disclosing. The problem is a lot of private firms are getting their equity and, and um, uh, uh, debt capital from asset owners. And these asset owners are interested in the emissions of their private equity. Um, and, and in the FTSE Russell survey, 64% of the asset owners stated that they were motivated to adopt sustainable investment to mitigate their long-term risk. And this chart shows 
um, the asset classes for which sustainability considerations have, have already been implemented among this survey of asset owners that FTSE Russell did around the world. Um, the total is, is the green uh, columns, and then the blue is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, the, uh, and then we have Asia Pacific, and then North America. And as you can see, with public equity, 69% of the asset owners in Europe have said that they, that they ha have already taken sustainability into account. And they've done it, 50% of them have done it for fixed income. But you can also see increasing numbers for um, private equity infrastructure and real estate. And I expect that this is going to get even, even higher. Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about the regulatory requirements on ESG and the implications of these regulatory requirements. This I find to be a very striking graph because this, is, this has been collected by the uh, UNPRI and they have a database with regulatory requirements. And if you look, there is very little and then, you know, along with the interest in ESG investing um, and, and ESG, the terminology was developed in 2004, 2005 by, by a group that Kofi Annan uh, got together. So that's about right here. As you can see, these regulations have really been going up on sustainable finance policies. Um, and this is up to April of this year and, and includes 160 countries. So a lot of these have to do with disclosure so that investors understand more. Um, so, you know, if you think about disclosure, you know, let, let's just take carbon-related disclosure. How does it differ from financial disclosure? Well, one, there's often a wider audience, and this is actually true of any kind of um, uh, corporate social responsibility disclosure, but it's often demanded by a wider audience. The consumers care, community members, policymakers. Uh, I, I left out employees here who care a lot, um, as well as investors and regulators. And in fact, a, a study a long time ago by McKinsey found that employees were the ones who were pushing the most for their companies to be doing, be active in corporate social responsibility. Um, the, these disclo disclosures have to be multidimensional. They're difficult to measure in monetary terms, so, so they're more difficult for people to, to interpret um, and for, people, for the people who are doing the disclosure to understand what they're supposed to disclose. They're hard to compare and standardize. How do you compare across different different firms? Unless it's, you know, unless it's just emissions. But even with with like scope one emissions, there's different ways people measure it, and that's why assurance has become important in the in the carbon emissions disclosure. But these disclosures also have externality benefits that go beyond the firm. So there is a lot of interest. In these, in these disclosures. Okay, so are investors asking for these disclosures? And research does provide us with some answers. This is, this is a, a new research paper. Um, and it, what they did, I mean, it's just amazing. They got, um, 80,000 conference calls that they could do a textual analysis about for over 10,000 firms in 34 countries. And they were looking between 2002 and 2019. And, um, and the other important thing about this is they were only using the question and answer part. So this does not include any, any pre-thought out um, uh, speeches by CEOs or CFOs. So these are just the question and answer part of the conference call. So it also reflects 
the interest of the analysts and investors that were on the call. And they found this increasing references to climate risk. And you can see, you know, some of it after, after some big events like Hurricane Katrina you, or the Copenhagen Climate Summit, you can see it kind of going up with, with some of these. But you can see this big increase in references to climate risk. They also looked at just um, references to climate regulatory risk and found a very similar graph of just increasing interest by um, the investors. Okay, so, so this has to do with what investors think about um, climate risk disclosure. So with um, my, my colleagues, Emir Ilhan, Philip Kruger, Zach Sautner, we did a survey of institutional investors from around the world. This, this survey had over 400 investors. It had some of the largest investors from around the world. Um, and one of the questions we asked them was, how important do you consider climate risk disclosure in comparison to reporting on financial information? And what we found was 51% thought it was equally important, 18% thought it was more important, and 10% thought it was much more important. So 79% believe that climate risk disclosure is at least as important as financial disclosure. Only 4% thought it was much less important. This survey we conducted in 2018, I would love to redo it today, because I think you would, you would find it an even higher percentage that thinks, it, that thinks it's important. Um, okay, so some data on the US. You can see that US corporations are voluntarily responding to investor, customer, and employee requests for more information on their sustainability. In 20%, I mean in 2011, 20% of S&P 500 companies issued sustainability reports. By 2020, that had increased to 92%. So there's much more, and again, these are voluntary, there's much more demand and interest um, in issuing these kind of reports. Uh, the Russell firms, which are, you know, which includes, includes a lot smaller firms, 70% voluntarily issued sustainability reports in 2020. But there's been considerable pushback, recent pushback in the U.S. on climate disclosure requirements from both investment managers and corporate managers. So these are even people who, who believe there should be more climate disclosure. They just think that too much is being asked from the recent proposal by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So the Investment Company Institute, and I've, I've just taken some of the, the highlights of what they've said. They agree material climate risk should be disclosed, but they think if they're non-material climate risk related disclosures, that those should come out separately from the annual report and even later, like up to 120 days after the annual report. They, they don't agree that it should be all in, all in one report. They believe that companies should disclose scope one and scope, scope two emissions and those um, uh, disclosures should have limited assurance. In other words, they should be have some auditing so people could have, uh, uh, they would be more credible. But they don't believe companies should be required to disclose scope three emissions unless the companies announced a target about scope three emissions. If they've announced that they want to reduce their scope three emissions and they have some target, then they should disclose. But otherwise, they don't think scope three emissions um, should be disclosed. And, and I think that's a, that's a big problem. Scope three emissions, again, like ESG, we don't really know how to define them. You know, how far down the supply chain, how far down the value chain do you go to try to figure out what those emissions would be? One other thing the SEC proposed disclosure said is that companies would need to have in the financial statements with climate-related financial metrics. And the Investment Institute, uh, who, who represent 
general manager um, <coughs> believes that companies should not be required to do this, that narrative disclosures would be much more informative than these, than these footnotes. So there, there's a lot of pushback. If I had to bet, I don't think the SEC proposal will go through as it, as it has been um, proposed. Okay, I just, uh, there, as I'm sure you're aware, there have been, there have been lots of uh, changes in regulatory requirements in, in Europe as well. And Europe is, is going much further than the US in terms of disclosures. But um, uh, I think these have had an effect. So this is from Morningstar, goes through the first half of the year. This is a monthly. And it shows the flows into the um, Article 8 um, uh, funds in the US. I'm sorry, Article 8 funds in Europe, the Article 9 funds in Europe, and the Article 6 funds in Europe. And you can see what the flows look like up until this requirement. And then you can see that the flows look completely different. Now, I don't have causality here. But it sure looks like that regulatory requirement has changed flows and made some, made some differences. And you can see that um, uh, the, one, the one type that has not had outflows over these months was Article 9. That the Article 8 has had some outflows and Article uh, 6 has had some outflows. And if you look at the the assets under management under eight, nine, and six, you can see that obviously Article Six, which are the traditional funds, has 49%. Article Eight, which is is not quite as strict in the sustainability requirements, has about 46%. But Article Nine only has 5%. Yet more of the flows are going into into Article Nine. And then this is the number of funds. And again, it's, it's, there are a lot more Article 6 funds than Article 8 funds. But there's a lot of repurposing of funds in Europe right now. This is much higher than in the U.S. There are some repurposing of funds in the U.S. And by repurposing, this is looking at funds that are, that are repurposing to some kind of an ESG fund, some kind of a sustainability fund. Um, and you can see that it's been, it's been very high in terms of repurposing. Okay, so, so when we think about ESG disclosure for portfolio managers, the question is, what's the purpose of the disclosure? Is it because the recipient wants the information because of ESG values or ESG value or both? And that, that really makes a difference. Right, because you need to know who's going to get the information and you need to know what kind of information they want. So if you think about it, if it's ESG values, the most important concern is what's of relevance to the investor and the portfolio. So they're going to want disclosure on, again, I'll go back to my animal rights example. How, how, is, the, how is the portfolio preventing companies that are harmful to animals from being in that portfolio. I'm trying to use animal rights because it's less politically objectionable than some of the others. I live in Texas, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> for ESG value, the most important concern then is gonna be financial materiality because if, if those investors are investing in ESG because, they, uh, because of the financial value, then they wanna know the financial materiality. So again, it depends on the goals of the portfolio and the importance of different issues to the portfolio's investors. The other thing is the importance of different E, S, and G issues have changed somewhat over time. And you know, how, how do you think about disclosing the E, the S, and the G? The E, well, climate has become more important than, than it used to be. So there's, there's a part of E, and, it's, and that's become clear. S, what does S mean? People don't agree on what S means. 
G is a little bit clearer, but not completely. Do we want a more independent board or not? There can be arguments against having, you know, a hugely independent board because of, because of information effects. So, so we don't know. The other thing is E, S, and G have been combined in part because of historical event that Kofi Annan used that terminology and that terminology started being used once the, once the report, Who Cares, Who Wins, came out. So um, should we really be lumping these all together? Because they're really three different, if you think about them as risk, there are three very different risk factors. And why we should use, I'm gonna go back to my uh, ratings issue. Why should we use total ESG rating as defining a firm? Because what we really wanna know is how the firm's doing on these different factors. Um, it's also the case that the interconnections among ES and G can make it difficult for investment managers reporting on ES and G separately. So now I'm arguing, well, wait a minute. If you think about climate risk, climate risk is, a, um, is an E, an S, and a G risk. It's not just environmental risk. It has, it has social effects. It has governance effects. There's also differences between backward-looking ESG measures. So, so what has the firm been doing in the past? What is the portfolio? manager been doing in the past versus forward-looking ESG measures. And more people really would like to know what's going to happen in the future. What are the prospects for the future um, for the ESG of the portfolio? And again, it goes back to values or value or both. Okay, so ESG and performance. Again, we need clarity on the definition. The evidence is mixed and resulting in very diverse opinions from both practitioners and academics. And we saw the diverse opinions here from that poll. And people have a tendency to interpret the evidence according to their own beliefs. So some you know, behavioral financing here is, I'm gonna show you some evidence. You're probably gonna go back and, and interpret it the way you, know, you came in thinking about it. So these are two meta-analyses. This one, took 2,200 studies that were done between 1970 and 2014 to, to aggregate them and, and what can we learn about what they concluded about the performance. Now obviously, if it went all the way back to 1970, this includes a lot of socially responsible investing or sustainably responsible investing funds. Um, but there are some studies that looked at the firms. So, they, so the, the firms were rated on their ESG characteristics and then, and then performance was compared. And there were some that looked at it in terms of the portfolios. So if we look at the firms, the green bar is the percent of the studies that found a positive relationship between ESG or SRI or CSR and performance. It was close to, it was over 50% that found there was a positive relationship between a firm's rating and its performance. There were, weren't many where there was a, a significant negative relationship. And again, this is the studies. Um, so this is out of 2,200 studies. And then, um, hard to tell between these two, but this is neutral and this is mixed. Um, uh, when they looked at the portfolios, notice it's a very different perspective. It was, uh, if you look at the portfolios, it was less than 20% that there was a positive relationship between performance and the ESG quality of the portfolio. And there was a higher where there was a significant negative relationship. Um, and again, this includes SRI funds. And, and if you think about trying to take very different SRI funds and concluding anything their relationship between their performance. I just, I think that's very, that's very hard to, um, I'm not sure what this tells us. 
in terms of, in terms of the portfolios. I think the firms, we maybe learn more, but the portfolios, I think it's very difficult to aggregate this when they have different goals. Okay, so this one was done between 2015 and, and 2020, and there were a thousand studies in that time period. They find very similar results in terms of the firms. It's more positive in terms of the portfolios, uh, but also more negative in terms of the portfolio. So more, more significant results. Okay, just some issues on ESG performance other than what I've already talked about. Do we have reverse causality? Do firms with higher ESG profiles have greater firm performance because of their ESG activities? Or is it that firms with greater firm performance have the resources to conduct more ESG activities and thus have a higher ESG profile? So we don't really know um, on that. Again, I've already talked about this. Should, should ES and G be combined in measuring performance? Um, and one difference between the firm results and the portfolio results is the firm results don't have this themed SRI portfolio influence and they don't have the management influence, right? The portfolio manager skill influence. Uh, in a recent study on ESG ratings, where they talk about measuring ESG is difficult and the ratings are noisy, they do believe that's resulted in biased performance analysis, but it's been biased downward by about 60%. Okay, so this is the performance of the S&P Europe 350 ESG index versus the S&P Europe 350 index over the last five years. Now, one caveat is much of this is backfilled because the ESG 350 didn't start until um, 2019, but, but so I'll show you this. So it's May 2019 when it started. The green is the is the ESG. The blue is the is the regular index, and, and you don't see a lot of difference between them. If you look at the S and P 500 ESG index uh, versus the S and P 500 over the last five years, you see this definitive difference in performance, which a lot of people have, have talked about. One thing about this, with the exception of this year, the uh, performance had the influence of high performance of the tech sector, because the tech sector has very high ESG scores, and poor performance of the oil and gas industry, and ESG portfolios don't have that much, and I think that might be one of the reasons for the for the differences with the with the European index. But one other thing is, demand for ESG can push up prices, and so part of this difference could be explained by the flows into the ESG funds um, over 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 this time period. So we so we don't know for sure. Okay, a couple more things. The firms with high ESG profiles show resiliency during hard times. And this is a really interesting study where they took, this is, they ran these regressions on a daily basis where they looked at how the um, stock returns, and this was during COVID, how the stock returns were related to a firm's ESG ratings, their cash to assets, and their financial leverage. And then they also controlled for book to market dividend yield, and so forth, in order to try to see whether an uh, ENS an e rating was connected with more resiliency during the financial crisis. And they do have some evidence that it was. Okay, so this is the way investors were treating the firms that had these different characteristics. So it's not the earnings of the firm, it's how investors were treating the firms in their trading. And not surprisingly, those firms that had more cash, so would be more resilient because of the cash, were treated best. Those that had more financial leverage, there was a fear factor with those. But if you notice, the ENS ratings was, was higher. And the authors argue that that's because these kind of firms have resiliency. So then the question is, well, why? And they argue 
that the resiliency comes from customer loyalty and investor loyalty. So why investor loyalty? Well, I have some research where we find that, that ESG profiles are related to the horizon of the investor. And we show that long-term investors have portfolios with higher ESG ratings. In fact, it's kind of unbelievable that this is a valuated ESG score where we divided the mutual funds and we did the same thing with um, uh, asset managers and pension funds, but we divided them into five different investor horizons where we measured the investor horizon of their, of their portfolio. And you can see just this monotonic relationship. The long horizon institutional investors, the long horizon mutual funds, both show uh, higher ESG <laughs> scores. The short-term traders have lower ESG scores and it, and it comes in between. And we also found that investors have more patience with the high ESG firms. When firms in their portfolio have poor stock returns or earnings shortfalls, we found that the long-term investors are less likely to sell the high ESG firms than the low ESG firms in their portfolio. And this is comparing high versus low ESG firms in the same portfolio, that the high ESG firms were less likely to be sold. We also looked at what happened when a firm got newly included in the FTSE for Good Index, um, and we found that then they were less likely to be sold, and if they were newly <clears throat> excluded, they were more likely to be sold. This is after poor stock returns or, or earnings shortfall. So, so again, the patients changed as they became, a, a firm became a better um, ESG firm or not as good an ESG firm. Um, one more little, little thing, because this has to do with, with Sweden. When investors demand higher environmental profiles, the extent of the firm's reaction depends on the firm's ownership structure. And we actually found, using Swedish data, that firms that had more powerful owners responded more to investor demand, whether we measured this as family firms, dual class shares, large block holder with high voting rights, or more concentrated ownership. Okay, so in conclusion, what ESG investing means depends on the context. ESG values implies that non-financial factors are important. ESG value implies that the ES and G activities can be financially material, particularly for long-term investors, and it's risk management and return opportunities, including engagement. Considerations on what ESG investing means and interpretations of the performance evidence depends on which context is important to to the investors. As I've talked about ESG investing, approaches can differ greatly based on whether the motivation is founded on ESG values, ESG value, or both. Using an ESG exclusionary approach can result in very different portfolio characteristics from using an uh, integration approach. Disclosure depends on what clientele wants. Um, which again depends on whether it's ESG values or, or value. And the studies that we have, more than 3,000 studies on the relationship between performance and ESG, there's still no consensus answer. And again, this is probably due to the aggregation of different types of firms and portfolios. And again, ESG values versus ESG value. However, it is true that a majority of the studies on individual firms find a positive relationship. So thank you very much. We open up for questions. Uh, I'll try to uh, moderate. Um, but do, do we have an extra mic? No. But I think yes. you're coming across. Yours is working. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, mine is working. Yeah, so uh, I can do it. But we need uh, some questions here from the audience. So who would like to start? Oh, you want to pass this around? Yes, I thought that would be. I can talk loud. Please, don't be shy. Pair. You showed in <clears throat> in the early slides that there were large differences between different parts of the world. The investment in Europe was much higher. Um, what is what is the story between behind the large geographical differences in investing in I think it's because the cultural norms are very different. You can you can you can you can go and look at like like environmental norms, social norms that have been have been tested with social scientists doing this around the world, and you find that Europeans are much more environmentally conscious than people in other parts of the world. And in spite of that, there is more regulation in Europe. You're right. right. Or maybe because of that. <laughs> so, yes, please. Uh, so what was your view on uh, the European Union's, let's say, sustainable climate agenda in general and the taxonomy in particular? Uh, <laughs> That's a very broad question, but like from your vantage point, how you view this? Is it successful? Do you believe in it? What you doing? I think there's a, a need to understand, to have more definitions, but it seems like maybe the definitions are getting um, tightened more than 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 we can than we can really understand and be able to to meet. Um, and then, and you know, and then there's a question of, of nuclear. Is nuclear good or bad? Natural gas, weapons, and conventional weapons. Given the war in Ukraine, I think, I think people have different views, and I think it's difficult to to legislate everything. Yeah, on the on topic of different views, you mentioned that uh, ESG ratings was a problem that they are so diverse and, and and it's also been criticized that they are not transparent uh, so th for the moment there is a discussion in Europe about regulating the ESG that usually are American by the way regulate them and to be more open about their methods and, and so on what was your view on that I mean we are already buying a lot of I guess it's the difference if you view ESG uh, investing from a value perspective or values yeah, I think, um, and, and by the way, I think some of the, the rating services view it <clears throat> according to values versus value. Uh, uh, and so I think that, um, I, I think it's good, actually. I don't think it's a problem that, that they, they aren't correlated. Um, <clears throat> You know, are, are we regulating financial supply side financial analysts about how they're how they're judging firms? I, I, I think I, I don't think they should be more regulated except for conflicts of interest. Even though the, the end clients, if you're promoting a fund with some characteristics and it's not as it is not defined, uh, there might be a uh, misunderstanding from the end client on what you're doing in the fund and you're using a ESG rating. Is, is that an area to that is problematic or is it? I, I would say that is related to conflicts of interest. And if there are conflicts of interest, I think those okay. could, could use better regulation. But if it's just for information purposes, for investing, I, I think it's, I think, I think the, the clients of the ESG ratings providers should be demanding more transparency for their own purposes. Um, Please. If you invest in ITF funds, for instance, uh, in index funds, then uh, you pay very little, but if you want them to be ESG funds, uh, 
the firms generally charge three, four times as much. So they make a, a lot of money by offering ESG funds. If you take BlackRock, for instance, they charge at least three, four times as much for an index fund if they exclude ESG investments. So it's very profitable for the industry. Um, yes. The, uh, and that's why they are pushing this a little bit, you know. The, um, so, so Magnus was talking about my, my research on <laughs> indexing, which we looked around the world, and we found that when index funds came into Europe and, and other places, uh, including the U.S., as, as, as there were more index funds coming in, the actively managed funds cut their fees and became more active. And so I think that, that competitive pressure should also work on the fees on ESG index funds. I'm, I'm surprised that there are a lot more. The, the argument from the investment managers is, but well, we have to do more work by defining you know, what's ESG. We have a question from Hans. Yeah, should, uh, should we assume that the ESG value factor should go away? I mean, if markets are you know, reasonably efficient, people are leaving money on the table here, right? So over time, predictability of these factors should go away, and we will only be left with the ESG value aspect of investing. Do you agree with that? Well, if you think about ESG value investing as being like a style of investing, like growth or value or momentum, then, then there's always going to be differences of opinion, right? So there's always going to be something. But, but, but you are correct that, that if there is <clears throat> financial value to investing according to ESG and everybody agrees on the ESG, then we should see that arbitraged away. I don't think we'll see people agree. I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yes, please. Yes, okay. Uh, first of all, um, regarding Article 6, 8, and 9, uh, I know that in Sweden, I think that the highest portion of funds about 8 or 9, I think it's 92% or so. And if you compare to Europe, it's less. You know, is that due to that we classify funds according to 8, 9? Uh, you know, because we try to be kind, uh, or or is it um, is it real that Article Eight and Nine are right figure for Sweden? So, um, given my limited experience in in Scandinavia and working with the Norwegians on responsible investing, I think there's a lot more interest in Sweden and Norway for responsible investing, and so. I think you probably have more eight and nine funds because there's a greater demand for it here than in other parts of Europe. But I haven't tested this. This is just an opinion. So I, I want to push you a little bit on the performance part. So we saw in the poll that the audience thinking short term is underperformance for ESG investing, maybe we are looking back and see what happened in the spring and this year and so forth, but then we are more positive on the performance on the long term. And you referred to two meta studies that sort of mm -hmm. come to, let's say, we don't have a consensus, you say. Mm -hmm. But if you would pick the best paper you know, what will be the performance result in that paper? The best paper I know about. Oh, performance. on performance, rather than the meta studies of thousands of different studies. Um, I, I would say that the best ones there have been on the firms and not the portfolios, and there is some advantage to ESG. On, at the firm level, but at not the at the firm. portfolio level. Yeah. Yay. So, I actually also have similar questions about the meta-analysis of papers. Does the general know that for empirical papers, maybe you know, in a paper 15 years ago, they are less credible compared to the current papers? 
And then do see some shift of results, say for example, more recent papers show more negative correlations or you know, like uh, null results. Because that's my impression. You know, recently some papers studying hash bounds or neutral bounds or uh, now hash bounds or venture capital bounds, they all show negative returns mm -hmm. for those impact bounds. And so what is your opinion about, you know, like <laughs> Well, um, since I've been publishing for more than 15 years, I disagree with your first. <laughs> the, the methodology has improved. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I think, um, I guess this gets, gets back to Magnus's question about, you know, what, the, what do the best studies show? I, I think one problem with the more recent studies is we have the oil and gas shock and we have the um, uh, we have the price pressure from the flows and then also um, Pastor Stanbaugh and Taylor had this new paper dissecting green returns where they find that most of the positive um, environmental return has come when when there's been climate news and people seem to be putting more money into, into the, the environmental funds. Um, and so they argue that this is based on, on news and you shouldn't, you shouldn't expect to see this in the future. The higher returns. Yeah, do, do you think that the, the market-based approach that you see in, in a way in the US where, where companies compete with different models and different institutions have different ideas is better in the long term than the European model, which is more driven by regulation and, and consensus seeking, uh, given that in the US it seems sometimes to evolve into culture wars? Um, okay, I, I find the... Um, I find the anti-ESG sentiment that's going around the U.S. right now very curious. I don't, I don't understand it. I, I don't think there's a basis for it except um, that politicians that are protecting fossil fuel firms. Uh, I don't. So, you know, I don't see them going and trying to protect firms that are, uh, uh, say, being omitted from uh, some kind of a values portfolio other than, other than climate. Uh, so it, it, it just makes no sense to me that, that, that there are these anti-ESG laws coming about. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I, guess, I guess that answers your question. That, well, I'm just thinking in the U.S. as in Europe, and using fossil fuels, for example, is perfectly legal. And then, shouldn't it be, in a way, legal to invest in fossil fuel companies? Isn't that, in a way, in the end, what you're discussing, really? Some people want to avoid to invest in such things that they use daily. Ah, uh, yes, that is. That is. I, I think there is um, a question about divesting fossil fuel companies from your portfolio when you, unless you're really cutting back on the electricity that you're using. Um, I, 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 th I think a positive tilt is, is better. Um, but I think people should be able to invest how they want. We have a last question from Diogo. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say ESG issues are more probably more prevalent in developing countries. So if we move to an investment model that is driven by ESG concerns, does this accelerate distortions in like investment and capital allocation across development, developed and underdeveloped countries? Okay, so I have two answers to this question. First of all, FTSE Russell, the FTSE for good, they have a lower bar for companies in developing, in emerging markets. Um, and then second, there's research that's shown that U.S. firms, at least, a number of them are outsourcing their emissions to, which is one reason that, you know, people want to see the scope three, but they're outsourcing their emissions 
to developing countries. All right, um, we uh, close the Q&A and we actually move on to the sort of final part here, which will be that we would like to award uh, Laura. So uh, the award is called the Scandia Award. Um, the Tula Foundation is uh, behind it and supports research and long-term savings. And uh, Professor Laura Starks um, from the Macomb School of Business, University of Texas at Austin, is the receiver of the award uh, 2022. And Laura receives the award for relevant contributions to banking, insurance, and financial services. And Laura is particularly recognized uh, for her important work on sustainable finance. So I want uh, Hans uh, Malmstend, a uh, member of the board of Tula Foundation, uh, to uh, hand over a diploma. And um, we have it over here. And uh, big congratulations. Oh my gosh. I don't know if you believe on Saturday, but probably have a could have a look at them okay. tomorrow. Thank you. They, they will be in Laura's office tomorrow. So she will be uh, visiting the, the department and the Swedish House of Finance. And um, there will also be a check coming. Uh, with uh, price uh, money. All right. Thank you very much for uh, joining us and thank you very much, Laura, for um, educating us. Thank you. Thank you.